All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead Church. Uh, we're going to Philippians 4, so go ahead and grab your Bibles and flip over to Philippians 4. If you don't have your, uh, your Bible with you, that's fine. Go ahead and grab one off the chair in front of you. And in our Bibles, we're going to page 982. If you don't have a Bible of your own, please feel free to take that one as our gift to you. Um, so this morning, we are finishing up our Unshaken series. This is our last week in in Philippians 4. Next week we're going to be starting a new series called We Are Trailhead, and we're going to be looking at the values and, and, the, and the philosophies and the principles that, that drive us, who we are as a community, uh, who we believe God has shaped us to be, and who God is shaping us to be. And so um, we invite you back. We're going to be doing five weeks uh, looking at um, how God is shaping us as a church, and so we'd love for you to come back, join us, and be part of that uh, study and conversation. This morning, we're going to be wrapping up in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be reading from verses 4, uh, once again through verse 9, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The word of the Lord. You guys, thank you for joining uh, me over the last six weeks as we've been digging into Philippians 4. Um, I love it when we get the opportunity to just grab a, a single piece of Scripture and, and dig in. Um, it's, it's challenging to me as a believer. It's challenging to me as a teacher, and, and I believe um, ultimately equipping. It's, it's, uh, in, it, it, I think it's really valuable for us um, to just sit in a passage and then let that passage uh, shape us. Um, as we've explored over the course of this series, we are a culture in love with anxiety. I mean, we are driven, uh, we are overscheduled, we are overspent, and we are in over our heads. That pretty much describes all of us most of the time. That's a lot of stress, that's a lot of anxiety that we are processing on a daily basis. Add to that the fact that we are in this crazy election year cycle, and a lot of people honestly are ready to crack. The amount of anxiety and tension um, is it's just over the, over the top. Um, and, and so we've talked about how the gospel equips us to live unshaken lives even while the culture around us is shaking, right? The victim of this cultural shaking is often our hearts, right? There's a battle waging and the victim is our hearts, but the battle itself is going to be won or lost in our minds. Uh, to live the kind of lives that were promised in this passage, we need to engage intentionally in the battle for our minds. So if we're going to have hearts of joy and gratitude, we need to have minds that are focused on and driven by the gospel. And that's really where we're going. We're going to be looking at verses 8 and 9 uh, this morning. And Paul begins in verse 8, finally, brothers. <laughs> um, he is saying, look, here we are. 
I'm at the end of this passage. I've been talking about having the peace of God, which surpasses understanding. I've been unpacking these principles about how to get there. And this is the last thing I want to say. This is, this is where I'm going to kind of culminate the argument, where I'm going to, to wrap things up. Um, I want to cut to the heart of all of this, because this is what you really need to hear. You need to engage your mind intentionally. You can't just let your mind drift through the currents of the day, constantly reacting without proactively um, taking control. You need to anchor your thoughts in the gospel. Um, So we have an interesting structure in this verse. He lists six adjectives in a row, right? Whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. And then we get two clauses, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise. And then we get the sentence, (laughs) the thrust of the whole thing. Think on these things. Think on these things. Now, I'm going to go a little bit English teacher on you um, because that's what I like to do as uh, in my former life. um, Love to study language. This verb, think, is actually the middle voice in the present tense. And you're like, what? Uh, It's middle voice, which is something we don't have a lot of in English. English, we're very familiar with the active and the passive voice. The active voice is when I'm acting, right? I hit the ball. Passive voice is when the action is done to me. The ball um, was hit by me, right? Um, The ball received the action, active and passive. The middle voice is unique. It was used quite a bit in, in the Greek, but we don't use it much in English. And it was an action that was done by me, to me, or an action that's done by me, for me. The middle voice means I am doing the action, but the recipient of the action is myself, and and I'm doing it for myself. So when he says think, um, he's saying that it's something you're going to do. You're going to be active in the process, but you're actually doing it to yourself, and you're doing it for yourself. And it's present tense, which means it's something that needs to be happening now. (laughs) Whenever it's called the present, this needs to be what you're doing, right? And so this could be translated continually set your mind on these things, or meditate on these things without ceasing. So in this, I think we can see that Paul is telling us two things. The first is this. We have control over what we meditate on. We are not simply victims. Um, We have control over what we meditate on. Now, that doesn't mean we have control over every thought that crosses our mind, right? Like, you don't have control over what birds fly through your yard. You don't have control over what thoughts fly through your mind, but you do have control over which ones build a nest. You do have control over which ones actually settle in and shape how you see life and experience life, right? So, so he's telling us to take control. He's telling us we have a responsibility to take initiative and not simply be responding and not just be passive, but to actually be active in the process, right? So first, you have control. The second is this. Our experience of peace is dependent on our taking control. That we will not experience the peace that's promised in this passage unless we fight this fight, right? We need to be very, very careful about which thoughts we allow to take nest in our head because they become a permanent part of our thinking. They shape how we view ourselves and how we interact with the world because what drives your mind will lead your heart. 
And if you want to experience the surpassing peace of God in your heart, you need to be anchoring your mind in truths that are going to lead to that peace, right? Now, this is not an easy thing. In fact, in verse 9, right after, um, Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul's saying, look, I, I know even as, even as I'm writing this to you, this may seem like an impossible task. And I'm not, I'm not unfamiliar with the challenge, right? Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter. The book of Philippians is called the, the New Testament letter of joy, and he was in prison when he wrote it. In fact, when he planted the church in Philippi, he was physically beaten and imprisoned. And, and that night, they came and they heard him singing songs, hymns, while he was in prison. And it wasn't, I don't think, because his heart was overflowing with joy. (laughs) He had been beaten and imprisoned. I believe it was because he was fighting in his mind for joy. He was singing not in response to the joy he felt, but in pursuit of the joy he knew was in front of him. He was fighting to anchor his mind in the truths. So what he's saying is, look, I'm I'm not telling you to do anything. I haven't fought to experience myself. I'm not telling you to to do anything that that I haven't myself had to engage, right? What you've heard from me, what you've seen from me, put this in practice, right? And I'm telling you, I'm telling you from experience, the God of peace will guard your your heart and your mind. If you engage this battle, if 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 you seek to put this into practice, if you do this, The God of peace will be with you. So Paul is modeling for us and telling us what to do. And and honestly, it's what modern um, psychological research tells us we should be doing anyway, right? Where we set our minds determines the experience of our heart. This is really no surprise, but there has been significant research done on this very topic. Barbara Fredrickson is a psychological researcher at the University of North Carolina, and she did um, a pretty important study in 2008 in which she um, took a bunch of theories and, and built a group. And, and this is what ended up happening. She, she took five groups, and she exposed those five groups to, to different kinds of stimuli. So two of the groups were exposed to positive stimuli. So they were shown images that were meant to evoke joy. Um, group one. Group two were shown images that were meant to evoke contentment. Group three, on the other hand, were shown images that were designed to evoke fear. Group four were shown images that were designed to um, evoke anger. And then group five was a control group. Group five were shown images that, that were deemed to be neutral in, in um, their presentation. Each participant was then instructed to imagine themselves in a similar situation to the images they just saw. Um, And this is where it gets interesting. Now, the responses, I mean, on the one hand, it's exactly what you would predict, right? The people that were shown images of anger, um, they were given a blank piece of paper, all of them, with 20 blank lines, and, and each blank line began with the sentence, I would like to, and then they were supposed to fill in. Uh, the statements. And those who were shown images of anger obviously expressed um, outrage, a, a desire for justice, a desire to, to, uh, to right the wrong, right? Those who were shown images um, of, of um, 
uh, joy. Uh, we're expressing positive emotions. There's really nothing surprising there, but this is where it gets interesting. Those who were shown images of fear and anger had the fewest responses uh, of anyone in the test groups. They just couldn't think of very many responses. The neutral group had slightly higher response rate. The, the people that were in the joy and contentment groups, they had significantly higher numbers of response, actually just the variable and, and number of responses. And this is where the research went, and this is what the research has been showing, is that, is that the world narrows when we're under threat. When, when we are processing life through the lens of negative emotions, our world narrows. You see fewer options. You are capable of less critical thinking. You have reduced ability to distinguish fine details. When you are afraid or angry, you can often only see a single solution, a single path to safety. When you're processing life through negative emotions, your world shrinks and the options diminish. On the other hand, your world broadens when you engage it through feelings of joy and contentment and security. You see more options. You see a broader um, array of connections, things that don't seem to be immediately related. You, you are more prone to creative thinking and finding opportunities. You are more prone to actually moving in and exploring and experiencing new things and developing new skills. You, you are more prone to perceiving greater opportunity when you're approaching life through feelings of joy and contentment and security. See, this makes a lot of sense when you think about it, you guys. We've been wired this way, right? If a bear jumps out at you, you don't want to be distracted by details. You know what I'm saying? Like, you want to move to safety, right? Your mind channels all of your energy and all of your thoughts, and they're focused. Where do I find a place of survival? Where do I find a place of security, right? You don't need to be noticing insignificant details, right? While you're running from the bear, you don't need to notice that the cloud looks like Winnie the Pooh. You don't need to be noticing all the different kinds of bark on the trees and how unique they are and which side of the tree the moss grows on. You don't need to be paying attention to all the different sounds, you know, the bubbling brook and, and oh, look, there's a woodpecker. I hear him tapping in the distance, right? Those are not thoughts you need when you're running from a bear, right? Right? When you're running from a bear, all you need to be thinking about is what's the path to safety? Where do I put my next foot? Where's my next turn? The world narrows when you're under threats, when you process it through negative emotions. You guys, what's good for a bear attack is horrible for the rest of life. Because when we process life, from the position of being threatened, from the position of fear, from the position of, of negative emotions, and, and we narrow the world, it reduces our ability to navigate difficult relationships. 
It reduces our ability to get our mind around and process complex situations. We'll find ourselves gravitating toward simplistic answers to complex problems. We will find ourselves discounting information that is, in fact, vital for us to process life and make wise decisions because that information is, is, is too threatening. It is too far outside of our comfort zone. It is, it, is, it is extraneous. In fact, a lot of times we don't even see it while we discount it because we're in survival mode. See, when we process life from this position, it robs us of clarity. And we will often miss the opportunities right in front of us. Because when you look around, all you see is the threat. And all you feel is your need to move to a place of security. You guys, listen, it will drain you of your energy. It will keep you from seeing obvious solutions. It will rob you of having joy. It will cause you to see people who are your potential friends as enemies and and even people who are your enemies as potential friends. Because in that process, you lose the ability to make fine distinctions and it will fill you with anxiety. So it's pretty clear, you guys, that there is power in positive thinking. I mean, that's, there's no surprise there. The research is simply reinforcing what we have already known and our culture has already discovered, right? There's a reason that there are over 51,000 books currently listed on Amazon that are about the power of positive thinking. Over 51,000 books that are designed to help you think positive thoughts and live a life driven by positive thinking. People who practice positive thinking tend to have a better experience of life. They, they tend to, to see things differently. They tend to see the bright side. They tend to experience good things. But here's the catch, you guys. This isn't what Paul's calling us to here. Um, he's calling us to something much better than simply the power of positive thinking. And in fact, the positive thinking movement falls short. Because positive thinking, the, the movement of positive thinking, will often cause you or, or call you to just focus on, on the good things and ignore the bad, right? Focus on the silver lining, not on the cloud. Focus on the positive feelings, not the negative feelings. Gravitate toward those things that make you feel good and secure, not those things that make you feel threatened. It often tells you to get rid of the things that are negative in your life. Just, just eliminate them, even if they're relationships. You don't need those kinds of negative people in your life. Right? Get rid of them. Surround yourself with happy, positive people. Surround yourself with people that, that are just bubbling with joy and, and, and allow you to, to just ignore all the negative emotions and be happy. You guys, I'm just going to state it. This is, a, this is a false gospel. This is dangerous. Because it's actually a self-salvation project. The idea behind it is if I can just think enough happy thoughts, then I'll be happy. If I can just surround myself with enough happy influences, then I will be able to control my life and ultimately um, make positive opportunities and fix myself. And like all forms of legalism, it will exhaust you. 
and it will fill you with shame when you don't do it good enough. And you compare yourself to others who seem to be doing it so much better. You guys, we're not being called in this passage to see the world through rose-colored glasses. We are being called to see the world through gospel-centered glasses. I want to explain how that's different. Because we're not talking about positive thinking. We're talking about focused thinking. We're talking about letting God's word, God's character, and God's actions lead our thinking. To see this world, to see this world, what it is with all of its brokenness and all of its mess, but in the midst of it to see the hand of God's glory. We live in a glorious ruin, right? This is a creation created by a glorious and good God, but it's been ruined by the sin and brokenness and rebellion of mankind. And, and we don't want to, we don't have the ability to not see the brokenness. We don't want to deny it exists. We don't want to pretend it's not there. But we do want to develop eyes that are able to see the hand of a redeeming and restoring God in the midst of the brokenness. To be able to see the presence of the glory even in the midst of the ruin. We want to be able to see the world that is coming, even in the world that is. Right? Because Jesus rose from the dead and inaugurated a new kingdom, and that kingdom is breaking into this world. We want to see the glory of the coming kingdom, even as we look at the ruin of the kingdom around us. So I want to walk through this list of virtues, this list of adjectives, and just discuss how they impact, uh, in a practical sense, um, how we think or how it should, right? He says, first of all, whatever is true, right? Think on these things. Whatever is true. Now, the power of positive thinking would tell you to think about things that make you comfortable, to think about things that, that bring you joy, right? Things that probably agree with your perspective, And don't push you too far outside of your comfort zone. You want to remain unchallenged in your thinking because that's the place of serenity. But we are told here to meditate on what is true, not on what is easy. The first question shouldn't be, do I agree with this? Or do I like what it says? Or does it confirm what I want to hear? Our first question should be, is it true, even if it's hard? Well, Steve, does that mean that I should fact check every meme before I repost it? Yeah, please do. (laughs) For real. Yeah. We have way too many people that are just knee-jerk, like, oh, that makes me feel good about me. I like what that says about my views. I don't even care if it's not true, right? Nobody's going to read it that doesn't agree with me anyway because they've already all unfriended me. So I might as well just repost all the garbage that's not true so we can just be an echo chamber of the garbage, right? No, fact check it, right? We want to think about the things that are true, not just the things that make us feel good about us. But Steve, what if the situation turns out to be more complex than I thought it was? What if it's harder to think about than than I thought it would be? What What if I can't, in the end, I come away more confused than I went into it? Welcome to reality. We live in a complex world. There are very few simple answers. There are very few one-liners that just perfectly summarize how to solve every problem. We live in a complex world that often requires a little bit more complex thinking. 
You guys, we aren't being called to comfort. We're being called to examine and think about what is true. Well, Steve, that sounds like it would increase my anxiety. If I have to analyze everything, whether it's true or not, and not just ask, do I agree with it, that's going to make my life harder. All right, listen, remember, we're not talking about your self-salvation project. Your self-salvation project, if you create your own salvation project, you're going to take the path of least resistance. You're going to choose what's easiest, right? And it's easy just to agree with what you already agree with. It's easy to surround yourself with people who say what you want to hear. That's easy. But there's no salvation at the end of a self-salvation project. There's no peace at the end of our own solution to our problems. We want God's salvation project. We want the peace of God, not, not our own um, artificial peace, right? We're looking to God, and, and that's why we need to start, you guys. This really is complex, and it's difficult, and it's going to push on you, and it's going to be difficult, and that's why we need to start with the big things we know that are true and then work our way down from there. So that means we need to start with God. <laughs> if you're going to think about what is true, you need to think about God. God is, capital T, true. He is the essence of what is true. He is, he is the architect of integrity, He is true. He's not just the measure of truth. He's the embodiment of truth. Who He is and what He's done. So that means when we consider God, we we consider truth, right? God, God is a creative, powerful, loving, often confusing and challenging Father who loves us as his children and, in fact, would allow no chasm to go uncrossed in order to win us back and to redeem and restore what was lost and broken. As we consider this God and fill our vision with this, we see a God who's drawn near to us in Christ and are anchored in truth, right? I need to remind myself that I'm a sinner, inclined to twist things to my own agenda. I just am. I want to hear what I want to hear. I like things that reinforce what make me comfortable. I realize that. You're like, Steve, that doesn't sound very positive. It's really not. But it's true, right? And we're considered to to meditate on what is true. It's also true that God loves me in spite of my sin, not because I don't sin. God doesn't love me because I have it all right. He loves me enough that even when I think I do and I don't, He's patiently going to to help me move toward what is right. It's not about me fixing myself for God. It's about me learning to rest in what God has done to make me more like Jesus. He paid the price for my sin. That's true. Jesus rose from the dead. That's true. When He did, He inaugurated a new kingdom. That's true. And that kingdom will replace all the broken kingdoms of this world, including ours. That's true. You guys, because Jesus rose from the dead, these things are true. We start with the big things we know are true, and then we work our way down from there. You start with the big stuff, and then you allow the the peace that comes into your heart, the confidence that comes into your heart, the, the, the strength that comes into your heart, equip you to have the humility to ask hard questions, 
the, the willingness to move into uncomfortable conversations and to consider challenging perspectives. To, to not have a knee-jerk reaction that simply wants to condemn and shut down, but actually invites and considers. Because our pursuit is truth, not self-glory, our own personal answers. We rest in what we know to be true. And as we rest in what we know to be true, God frees our hearts to rest in the stuff we can't figure out, the stuff that's beyond us. So we're to think about what is true. We're, we're supposed to think about whatever is honorable. That's the next one on the list. The word honorable is a word that describes what is serious, sublime, dignified, majestic, august. We're called here to focus our minds on what is noble and what is honorable as opposed to what is ignoble and vulgar. What that means is, is when we're overwhelmed with life, we, we don't want to run to CD entertainment to distract us, right? To, to simply take our minds off the craziness and difficulty of life. We want to be meditating on what is right and good and honorable, not on what is wrong. Instead of filling your vision with what's wrong with the world or what's wrong with the candidate you don't like, which results in your heart simply being filled with fear and a narrowing of perspective and an oversimplifying of complex issues, we need to be filling our vision with what is honorable. We begin with, with allowing that to shape our hearts into a place of peace. It's not that we refuse to see the brokenness around us, but we refuse to let that brokenness nest in our mind to shape how we see ourselves and, and the whole world. We need to meditate on what lifts our gaze to what is beautiful and worthwhile instead of meditating on all the nastiness that surrounds us. Then we will be empowered to engage what isn't honorable. We're supposed to think about whatever is just. Now, this word for just is the same word that we get the word right from or righteousness because to be just and to be righteous, uh, they go hand in hand. Righteousness and justice always go hand in hand. And it means that we're to, to set our minds on the things that are above guilt, above reproach, that, that are motivated not by evil motives, but by pure and healthy motives. You guys, there's so much injustice in the world and so much suffering. It can be overwhelming. When you simply look and, and allow that suffering in, it can be overwhelming. And, and when you fill your vision with that suffering or you fill your vision with the people who are too self-serving and too self-focused to care about justice and to care about the suffering of others, it can be overwhelming. We are called not to allow the injustice to become the center of our focus. But what is just? You guys, there is justice in spite of the injustice. There is a righteous kingdom that will supplant this kingdom of brokenness. There is a righteousness that will ultimately replace the sin. There is a healing that will come, a new kingdom that will supplant the kingdom of brokenness around us. And even in this broken world, we're seeing glimmers of the kingdom to come. We're seeing just actions and movements toward setting things right. We are to set our minds on what is just and not simply spin in what is unjust. 
We are citizens of the kingdom of righteousness, and we need to approach this world and its suffering knowing that this is not all there is, that what is broken will not stay broken forever, and that the king will not stay absent. We are to think about whatever is pure. The word pure is a word that originally described the experience of of standing in awe of somebody when they walked into a room. Um, Is there somebody that you've ever experienced just deep respect for? Their character, their presence, that, that it actually caused you to notice when they enter the room, right? That's an image of purity, Right? There's something there, a purity, a, a character that is so clear, so compelling that you have to stop and pay attention to it. Whatever is pure. Now, this word, obviously, is pretty broad. It's going to include um, areas of, of sexual purity. Right? That we are to set our minds on things that are, that are sexually pure. It goes beyond that to issues of wisdom and good character. It speaks of a purity of nature. However, it's manifest. If we're honest, a lot of us often run to what is impure as a way to deal with the anxiety of our hearts. Because there is, in a sense, a a brief joy, a brief escape that comes from the titillation of impurity. And and we run to it as a way to hit the release valve on the pressure of life. The problem is that the pleasure is so short-lasting and it always leaves a bigger gap than it filled. We are called to run to purity, an acquired appetite for people who love what is impure. We need to set our minds on things that are of high quality, of of integrity. We need to fill our vision with what is holy and upright so that we might ignite our appetite for what is pure. And that includes not just uh, our religious behavior, but our our interaction with art and music and entertainment and people. We need to seek out what is pure and make that our focus. Whatever is lovely. My lexicon or or my dictionary um, says this about this word, lovely. It is a word that indicates things that commend themselves by their intrinsic attractiveness or agreeableness. They give pleasure to all and cause distaste to none, like a welcome fragrance. We are to set our minds on things that are lovely, things that just carry a welcome fragrance, things that are attractive and warming and by extension make us more approachable and gentle. We are to set our minds on whatever is commendable, The word commendable literally means things that are well spoken of. Good words. It's from the same root that we get the word euphemism from. You guys know what a euphemism is, right? A euphemism is a good word we make up to cover a bad thing, right? So when a politician says they misspoke, that's a euphemism for saying, I lied, right? But it's a a way of saying it that, that makes it sound better than it actually was. Here's the thing. We live in a culture of euphemisms. We live in a culture that is desperate to keep finding good words to cover horrible things. We live in a culture that is at war with euphemisms. My euphemisms are better than your euphemisms because in the end, all we have are broken, ugly things. So the question is, who can make their ugly things sound better than everybody else's? 
We live in a world of euphemisms. We need to focus our minds not on the euphemisms, the bad things that we cover with good words, but but the kinds of things that actually provoke in our hearts good words. (laughs) The word here literally means that when you see it, when you encounter it, it provokes praise. It provokes not a need to self-protect and distract and spin, but, but, but it actually provokes a, a heart's yearning and expression to speak of its intrinsic value. I don't know what that is for you, but as I thought about it, these are things like honesty, self-sacrifice, radical displays of love. When people give grace to someone who didn't deserve it, and didn't know they could have it. Those are things that, that provoke good words in me. When I see these things, they provoke in me a desire to praise. And then Paul rounds it out with two clauses. He gave six adjectives that are just to describe um, our mindset, where we're supposed to set our mind, and then he kind of summarizes with these two phrases. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise... Set your mind on these things. It's a way for him to summarize his final thought, right? Those things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable, these are the things that are excellent. These are the things that are worthy of praise. These are the things you should be meditating on, that you should be actively setting your mind on, that you should on a regular basis be intentionally and proactively setting your gaze on, seeking to allow these things to take nest in your mind. All right, a couple thoughts as we wrap this up. The first is this. This is going to be really, really hard. And it's really, really beneficial. Like it's non-negotiable. It's going to be hard, though. I mean, you guys know how hard it is to, to try to control what you think about, right? I mean, it really is. Like, Paul wasn't, I think, like Paul, when he said, man, look, I have to fight the same fight, it was a word of encouragement. Like, I struggle with this, too. As I was writing this sermon this week and fighting with these ideas, I, I just got up one morning, and Lauren was like, Steve, did something happen this morning? I was like, no. Why? I was like, I don't know, you seem upset. I'm like, I'm not upset. I mean, I hadn't even opened my laptop yet, right? No bad emails, no bad social networking stuff. No, you know, like, what would I be, what would I, and then I started thinking about it. And I realized that that morning, without even really consciously being aware of it, I'd allowed my mind to go down the path of a potential conflict, not a, not a real conflict, not a conflict I actually have, but a potential conflict, like where I might actually have conflict. And, and, and as I was kind of thinking about this potential conflict, I was actually thinking through the potential solutions to that conflict, what I would say when they said. So I was coming up with all of their arguments and all of my counter-arguments, and I was coming up with, with all of these ways that I was going to proactively, like, like I was coming out of it, like, well, I need to do these things before they do these things so that I can set the stage for these things. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm coming out of this. None of it was real. None of it had happened. But I came out of that morning, and what Lauren sensed was that I was ready for a fight. 
Nothing bad had happened. But I was ready for a fight. You know why? Because the thoughts in my head had shaped the experience of my heart. My vision had narrowed. And I was ready to, to, to fight. And as I realized that, it just kind of lit up for me like, holy cow, this is going to be hard. <laughs> this is going to be hard. Like, like actually thinking on these things to the point where they actually shape my daily experience. Um, you guys, we need to be engaged with the Word. Because the Word will provoke our thoughts in ways that we can't. A lot of times when we do daily Bible reading, um, it becomes a, a thing on our checklist. But, and it's, you know why it is? Because we're so busy. It's because we already feel the urgency of the day. When you sit down to read your Bible, you already have 15 things you need to get done. You got little kids yelling at you in the background. You got all these things. And so it becomes this task to do. When the reality is what we really need is, is not just a task to do, but, but something to provoke our minds that we might see what is true and honorable and just and commendable, and, and it, might, it might fill our vision. And this kind of leads me to the second point is this. When, when you read this description, these six adjectives, what we have is a description of the gospel, which is another way of saying we have a description of Jesus, who he, who he is and what he's done. And we need to fill our vision with the gospel Right to think about this word, think about that 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 uh, middle voice and 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 the present tense. Right, it's this idea of 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 we need to intentionally set our minds on these things. It means we need to meditate. Now the challenge is we're not very good at meditation. Some cultures are much better at it. In fact, they have natural rhythms of meditation built into their culture. The ancient Jews, Jesus had natural rhythms of meditation built into his life because it was part of their culture. We are such a productivity-driven culture that that rhythms of meditation uh, seem inefficient to us. We don't know how to do it. So what does it look like for us to meditate on these things? What does it look like for us to create space that these things might fill our minds? We need to engage the Word. We need to create intentional space. We need to set aside the productivity, that incessant need to do and to produce in order to sit and be shaped. That means when we engage the Word of God, it can't simply be something we do. It can't simply be an item on our checklist. We we need to be seeking to have our vision filled with the things that are true and commendable and just and lovely. A very effective way to do this is journaling. Journaling is um, intentional thinking. When you journal, it forces you to slow down. When you write, it forces you to actually articulate your thoughts. A lot of us hate to journal for that very reason. (laughs) It seems inefficient. It takes too much time. I don't know what to say. See, journaling actually forces you to sit in the thoughts. It's a form of meditation. And one of the things that I was thinking about coming out of my study this week is, and especially reading the psychological research on this, they recommended patterns of of positive thinking, and some of those were very helpful, some of the things they were recommending, and one of those was actually writing. They recommended sitting down and writing out a happy thought every day. I'm like, okay, 
but let's tweak that a little bit, right? Let's actually write out thoughts that are uh, intrinsic to the gospel, things that are, in fact, intrinsic to the list. Let's sit and, 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 and have a journal, a, a Philippians 4.8 journal, in which we start our day by intentionally thinking about something that is true, intentionally thinking about something that is lovely, intentionally thinking about something that is commendable and praiseworthy. We start there. Because you're going to start somewhere, right? My day starts with imaginary conflict, which leads to real conflict, right? How much better to start the day with a meditation that allows me to move into a place of peace, which broadens horizons, allows me to see opportunities, allows me to actually enter into the complexity of life without oversimplifying, right? Let's start in the place that actually equips us to engage life in a healthy way. By the way, this doesn't just have to be to the Word. Um, When he says, think about those things that are true and praiseworthy and commendable and lovely, it's not just the things that are in the Bible, but in all of life. Um, I often, when I was an English teacher, used to tell people that there's not fiction and nonfiction. There's true stories and not true stories. And a lot of fiction is very, very true. And what I mean by that is, is you read that fiction and you learn about yourself. And it helps you see more of of what is true in life. There are beautiful, commendable things as we engage the art and the literature and the creativity of this world around us. Now, it's a glorious room, and it's not all worth embracing, but there are pieces of it that definitely can intrigue us, right? I mean, everything from, I don't know, Stranger Things, I won't give away any of the endings, to, to, um, you know, uh, Shakespeare. As you sit in that, there are things that that provoke you to see Life in a commendable, beautiful, lovely way. All right, one final thought, and that's this. We live in a season of fear. We live in a season of narrowing vision. You guys, no matter who wins this election, a significant portion of our neighbors will feel like the world is ending. And I don't think I'm overstating it. No matter who wins the election, a significant portion of our neighbors will actually feel like the world is ending. People are scared, and they are angry. And scared people can do stupid and sometimes dangerous things. You guys, our culture needs us to model how to engage hard things with a mind that is moving from a place of peace. Our culture needs us to model how to have complex and difficult conversations in ways that aren't alienating, oversimplifying, setting up straw man arguments so that we can burn them down so we can feel good about ourselves. Our culture needs us to have the humility and the courage to move from a place of peace to a place of engagement. In this, I'm just going to warn you, you need to know the media is not your friend. Every media outlet is motivated by one purpose, to educate the public, right? No, we have a media for profit structure, which means that every media outlet is looking to build its market share. That's why it exists, which means that it is there to stoke your fear and pet your pride. 
And each media market is looking to build a niche audience that will agree with its internal biases so that they can reinforce the pride and the fear of that group and build and anchor themselves into a profit segment of our culture. Whether it is Bot Radio Network, Fox News, CNN, or Huffington Post, most of what is passed off as news is purely propaganda. It's a little bit of truth with a whole lot of spin designed to simply anchor you in to a specific bias, to ignite a specific fear, to pet a specific pride. Friends, if you are listening to a specific news source and you've lost the ability to see its bias, you're not in a good spot. I'm not saying we should disengage from all of our news sources, but we should be able to engage the news and be able to say, that's bias. Okay, that's propagandistic. That's pushing a little bit too far. We should be careful consumers, not blind consumers, that are simply feeding our biases, narrowing our vision through stoking our pride and stoking our fear. We need to be a people that are centered on the hope of the gospel, that are lit up with the hope of the coming kingdom in such a way that we are not blinded by the strategies of the kingdom that is. We should be a people that are able to point to a greater hope, operate from a greater peace, in such a way that people might even say, what is that hope that drives you? You're, it's different. The people might actually ask for the hope. We need to be a people motivated by a greater purpose. Which means, potentially for you, you need to spend less time listening to the news. Or more time listening to other news sources. Or less time engaging on social media. And more time with God. It's not that we want to disengage from this culture. We just want to make sure we engage our culture from a position of peace and hope anchored in the gospel, which allows us to move into complex conversations about truth for our own heart's good and for the good of our neighbor. All right, guys, I'm going to put some uh, response questions up on the screen. I'm going to ask you to pray and um, let God speak to you. Um, we're going to share communion in a moment. Um, before we do, let me, let me just pray for us. Father, we thank you that as we read this list, man, we get a description of your character. You are simply calling us to anchor our minds in the very things our minds were designed to be anchored in. The nature of your character, the beauty of your actions, the surpassing transcendence of your purpose. Lord, I pray that we would be a people undone by your love, amazed by your grace, filled with hope when we think of your coming, yearning for the breaking in of your kingdom, and that as those who are consumed with the beauty that will be, we can most effectively engage what is. Lord, let us be a people that are a light on the hill, pointing to a greater solution, motivated by a greater hope, experiencing a greater peace. You guys, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.